0: But this is what was really, really interesting. I think his name was yeah, Aten, uh, a German H- uh, Hittiteologist in 1966. He finds this Babylonian column, and in the column, they defined Shedu as Tarpis. Tarpis is the Hittite word, and so it's basically equivalent. So it's like Tarpis is this other deity. And Tarpus equals Shadu or Shadim is what we know as demons. Well, what are Tarpus? Tarpus are territorial spirits that guarded households of the gods and the entryway for them. And so you have the evidence of the teraphim being a a spirit that's associated with land and households. Uh, And then you have Rachel who grabs it because she's terrified. What if Yahweh doesn't pull through? And so you actually have a war that's essentially taking place behind the scenes in a family situation between these households.
3: Let's just get started. Welcome to the show, Dr. Joel Matamale. Joel, you are the Director of Theology and Research for Proverbs 31 Ministries and for Lisa Turkhurst. My wife's a big fan. So I think we talked about that at the conference. You're part of a preaching team at Transformation Church with Pastor Derwin Gray. You have a PhD in Theology under Dr. Patrick Schreiner and the legend Dr. Michael Heiser for Old Testament with an emphasis on Paul's household language in Ephesians as it relates to the Old Testament. And you actually pointed it out over your shoulder. I'm not sure if that'll make the cut earlier, but you yeah. pointed out the dissertation behind you. I thought it was pretty cool. Right there, You've got a great social presence and you're, you do a lot of teaching, biblical teaching, theological stuff. You work with with, with teams, uh, ministry teams and, and churches. But we wanted to have you on for a lot of reasons. One, Joel and I be, got to become friends this year of all things. So we're new friends, but it felt like old friends. We were at a, uh, at, at a conference in, in Georgia and I happen to be talking a little bit about Bigfoot Conference. Right? It, 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 was Bigfoot. it turned into it turned into one. It turned into one. Yeah. Wherever
0: Luke is, it turns into a big Bigfoot <laughs> conference. It brings it with him. That's true. He does. Yeah, but
3: we were talking I talked a little bit about the podcast on stage and and literally I come off and I'm in the back like looking for something to eat. And are bumping to Joel and he's like, Yeah. Hey dude, I heard you talk about Heiser. He's like, I I did my uh I studied under Mike and I was like, dude, no way. This is Yeah. So we kind of had this cool moment where, you know you know all that's transpired in the last in, in this in this short year with, with Dr. Heiser. I know we you had a relationship. We we got to have a relationship with Mike over, over the last couple of years of his life, and it was an unbelievable blessing. And the work he's done it speaks for itself and stands for itself when it comes to yeah. just reading the scripture for what it says and delving into the original meanings and context. And I love that's where your heart is, and so excited to have you on talk about what we're gonna talk about here. And yeah, yeah, Nate. Yeah, start them off, man. You got to baptize them in the blurry verse, man. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's right. We ask everybody. We've only had a few people that didn't have any thoughts. But Dr. Joel, what are your thoughts on Bigfoot?
0: <laughs> what are my thoughts on Bigfoot? No right or wrong answer. Okay, here's here's like a, a logical a logical thought, right? Oh. Um, here's the question: How can so many people, groups, ancient societies? I mean, we're talking the span of history as we know it, all speak to a type of phenomena and personal experiences and where does it come from, right? And so, like for me, like as the academic part of me, I just am like, listen, there's got to be an origin story. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a freaking origin story to this thing. Otherwise, anything of substance does not test, does not survive the test of time. It just can't right and so that's kind of like when you say bigfoot. for that's my that's like my first thing is like how in the world are we still talking about this and how is it not died out or how is somebody not proven this thing so um so ridiculously false uh you know and so that's kind of my thought dude honestly i like it yeah no, i think it's
3: yeah. dude it's it's the dude honestly it's the Heiser approach right like if, if only one of these sightings and we're talking about thousands of years you make a great point if only one is is true then it it breaks the paradigm you ha- you have to find a way to include this and, I, and you make a good point you know i don't think we talk a lot about this nate because we haven't talked to, had an episode specifically on bigfoot in quite some time i think we always t- touch on him um not in a weird way um, <laughs> but we you know we <laughs> oh man we got so many places with that. Oh, so many places yeah, yeah, right yeah. <laughs> no but listen like uh people are still having experiences they'll have them this year they had them last
2: year yeah they had them 1000
3: yeah. years ago and it's strange. They don't pull the body. They haven't pulled the body out of the woods, as far as we know. So something's going on, and, and something strange. Uh, I know it, we're at a journey podcast here, Joel. So we've we're 150 plus episodes in, mm. talking about all the weird stuff, and we talk about Bigfoot being the gateway drug, and it, it really, in yeah. some ways, for a lot of people, it is. They have an experience where they see something that doesn't make sense and should maybe shouldn't be there.
1: And it, and it causes them to have to
3: maybe reevaluate their place in, in, in the universe maybe reevaluate their their belief systems yeah it
1: sort of blows up their paradigm and they have to kind of rebuild it yeah
0: and I think that's so, a good point point. and when when something blows up your paradigm you have two options i think one is uh, what kind of mental gymnastics are you willing to do and for how long in order to substantiate like your previous view or when it breaks are you just willing to deal with honesty man like are you just willing to be honest with what's present in front of you and allow that to be the source of the new direction of questions that you ask new framework that you're willing to consider so it kind of serves as this pivot point of what i love that phrase like when that your paradigm breaks uh unfortunately I think a lot of people are afraid of the paradigm breaking and the consequences yeah. it's going to have for them and for their lives and the types of questions they're going to ask. And so it's just, e- they think it's easier to triple down on, uh, yeah. on past ways of thinking when it's actually just much more work and it's actually mentally exhausting.
3: It's safe though, right? I think, I think that's a problem a lot of times is that when you, when you allow it to open, you're, you, there's a ton of unknown and uh, you know we're creatures of wanting control and knowing and we're going to make boxes and compartments and Tupperware. Tupperware is a multi-billion dollar company. You want Tupperware that everything can fit in and stack and we can store, right? Even just in our, that's right. In our, in our thinking. And that's why we're here, Nate, right? Like this is what what we're I was having
1: this conversation with a friend yesterday. I think a lot of people, they mentally, but they also physically get in debt to these ideas. So Mm. you're paying money on student loans. You are so ensnared and trapped. And sometimes it's not even just a mental, you know, block that you're, you're, or a paradigm that you're stuck in. Sometimes it's like you have to well, I just spent $150,000 on an education that you know and a lot of it was bad and I think so a lot of people it's easier just to plow on down the road and continue to set everything aside as and call it an OOPart or whatever they say and put it on the side and say, "Well, that doesn't fit into our narrative, so we're just going to keep trug- trudging along." And it's really a bunch of brave individuals who who will push back, get off exit the freeway and go back the other direction. It's, but it's not very many people who will.
0: So that's so okay. I'm just gonna go there and this episode might just be a lot of throwbacks to uh, Dr. Heiser, but I mean like, dude, I'm in that boat. I'm I'm like, wait a minute, I'm reading the Bible, I'm seeing the evidence of a supernatural cosmic framework that's everywhere in the, in the scriptures. And yet I've taken, you know, at that point I had done an undergrad, I had done, um, an MDiv, uh, I was getting ready to start a THM program. Uh, I had done a side thing in psychology and I had maybe, maybe I was actually talking with another, uh, scholar this morning, Dr. Gary Breshears, um, who's another close friend of, uh, Dr. Heiser. And uh, I think we both were like, yeah, I think in all of, and he's 76 of all of our time, time in academia and studying before I got to my PhD program, uh, I think maybe an hour. If I got lucky too in angelology, demonology, or anything that deals with the supernatural, right? And so then you have somebody like Heiser who's willing to literally put his entire career and life on the line of just asking this question, what the heck does Psalm 82 mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the most natural, honest reading of Psalm 82 and allowing that to to take him in a, in a direction? And so, like, today, man, I get to stand on his shoulder. He Like what you just said, Nate, like, he went before me. He was a brave individual that went before me so that we can just continue to ask some honest questions of the text and allow that to clear up some things that have been blurry for so long because we've been hey. unwilling, hey. unwilling to just... Deal with the honesty of where the scriptures are leading to, you know? And yeah, they're gonna pose more questions, but what in life doesn't pose more questions at the end of it, you know? So it's just a journey. I love it. And you see it everywhere. It's like once you start
1: reading these things, I mean you you can't read a book like Job. Or you know some of these, uh, it's mind blowing that it's controversial to read the Bible this way at this point. I'm 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 just like look at all these weird books of the Bible. You have Ezekiel, you have Isaiah, you have Genesis, Job. Yeah, I mean, well, Genesis, Genesis, you can kind of, you know, they they massage that one. But there's some really other books where it's 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 like narratives, you know it's like Satan rolling in and like, well, this is my guy you can't you mm-hmm. can't take my guy, okay, well, I think I can, no, you can't you know it's 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 hard to rationalize this this scenario that's being- pl- laid out in front of our faces i I don't know how the church is. I could see it being okay, there's some people on this side and some people on this side, but it seems like a majority of people they listen to our podcast like ours and they're like, mind's blown, and you're like, wow it nobody really is." for the most part, asking the weirder questions?
0: I think part of it is a methodological approach. Part of that is, you know, I was reading a book by... um I think she's an old, yeah, she'd be an Old Testament scholar, Sandra Richter. And she has this incredible line early on in this book, Epic uh, of Eden, I think it's called, uh, where she talks about canonizing culture. Uh, And so if there's ethnocentrism, you know, there's this other approach that she has. And what she's basically saying is uh, often what we're guilty of is taking our cultural moment, our post enlightenment understanding, our technological awareness and trying to impute that into the biblical text and allowing that to be the framework. But in so doing, we literally are committing A horrific act against the text and the human authors of the text being led by a divine author, right? And so, uh, we have to really, like, I'm just asking these questions, like, what do the first readers think about these things? Mm -hmm. Like, for Samuel, you know, and you've got this shade that shows up, this Elohim of Samuel, like, what the heck is going on there? You've got Baal, you know, and this massive showdown with Elijah in 1 Kings 17, like what the heck is taking place on Mount Carmel, you know, and we could easily kind of just wash it with our modern understanding and in so doing totally miss cosmic warfare that's taking place, that's connected to territorial deities. That is the underlying backdrop mm. of the entire Old Testament text that leads us to Paul's language of powers and principalities in the New Testament. You know, it's like the question that Heiser always asks, where the heck does Paul get his language? Yeah, like where does he get his understanding of cosmic warfare? Do we really think that in Ephesians that the temple of Artemis is brand new, novel idea that just showed up? It's like, nah, bro. Come on, give me a break. They Mm, they they have been plagiarizing culture on top of culture from the very beginning, you know. And it takes us all the way back to Genesis Genesis chapters one through twelve, and so it's really just a recapitulation of an ancient story that's pretty devious and brilliant all at the same time, you know. Do you think?
1: Do you think that's a strategy like early on? Like, so we talk about the golden age a lot and it was like all these realms interacting. Do you think that that's more of a modern strategy? Well, in the ancient times, there was really not an unbelief problem. It was just, you know, there was so much chaos going on. You kind of had to pick a side and now modern day people are so apathetic. You think that's like a strategy of Satan to kind of woo people into this age of unbelief and then drop a cosmic sort of return or some kind of crazy deceiving miracle on the people that are just so asleep that they're just like willing to, I don't know.
0: Yeah, dude. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. I use it in my introduction to my dissertation. And I'm going to summarize, I don't have it in front of me. Basically, Lewis is like there, there are two great approaches that the malevolent evil spirits love. One is a total neglect of the spiritual realm. People walking around with their heads in the sand, just Absolutely unaware and negligent and dismissive of it. And so that one's horrific. But the other one is equally, which is an over-obsession right where there's this like massive um, compulsion to find something and then you start to entertain some things and get into some stuff where you're like oh i'm in deep waters right now like there's I, i'm indian and people are going to hear this they're not going to see me i'm indian from india uh and there are like paganism is massive massive mm. there there's hindu gods and uh, there's one example i have of i walked into a um i think the hindu god yama the god of death and had this temple there and list this is the wildest story uh, i'm walking and every the city around it is gorgeous like beautiful trees beautiful flowers there are these monkeys these animals that all are healthy they're running around you walk in to the temple gates of yama i mean if i didn't experience it, i'd be like this is bs this is not even true i walked in to the temple and all of a sudden everything is death it's decrepit it's like you can feel it being just off even the monkeys were all deformed inside of that lived inside of these temple gates right Mm. and so it's like there's a real malevolent world out there cosmic world that's out there and we see that it break through in different spaces that I think some some people phrase it as thin there are these thin spaces like if you have yeah. places where heaven meets Earth then they've got to be thin like logic has to work both ways We, we can't just be like oh everything is good on the heaven side and not believe there's not malevolent dark spaces as well And so for me that was like a personal experience of walking and it's territorial. Right, like there is a territory that is not marked and marred by this presence, and then there is a land and a space and a territory, wild, connected to a Elohim or a god, that is territorial space that has a totally different look, feel, and reality Mm -hmm. to it.
3: You know, dude, dude, this is your pro because we would we talked about what we want to talk about, and you steered us there, Joel, and I and I I love it. But this is, this is your dissertation. Other I I people don't know this. I know this because we talked about this over a cigar. You, under Heiser and under Dr. Patrick Schreiner, you essentially went to the Old Testament and you mined all this language of Paul. And you brought this up. And, and, but I want people to understand, this is what you wrote your dissertation. This is how you got your PhD in. And this yeah. is what I wanted, we want to talk about was territorial spirits. We talk about a, a you know, divine counsel worldview. That's the Mike Heiser sort of way of, of reading the Bible, and interpreting the Bible. Psalm 82, you touched on it. Connecting points to that, too, is Deuteronomy 32, which, of course, is dividing the nations and Yahweh. And you have then you have Paul, as you pointed out, talking about principalities and... Powers, authorities, dominions. Mm-hmm. Powers, authority, right? And, and so, you know, we get into the weird stuff here, and that is part of the Bible that is weird to us. I'm glad you said this, that our 21st century Westerners, right? That right. post, you said post-Enlightenment, we are in the academic era, and the idea that there are there were even not even are that there were these things is hard for a lot of people to digest but the idea this still happens and and i think you nailed it because i've also been places and i've talked about on the show whether it be afghanistan or in southeast asia some places that are and even in the united states you can go places new orleans comes to mind where you get off a plane or you get out of your car and it is a different atmosphere and people can say that's just you know, it's, it's perceptive, it's perception and doesn't have anything rooted in reality, but mm. we listen, if if you follow Christ, if you follow a biblical worldview, then we live in a supernatural paradigm. And and I think the wondrous work of our, of our, of our friend, our common friend, the late Dr. Michael Heiser was just to remind people what the scripture said and take them back to what it actually says and who wrote it yeah, and who, and who the audience was. And, and, and I think that's something
1: that, we can't harp on enough, right? I mean, yeah. Nate, go ahead. What do you say? Some of the harder parts is that, you know, things that Paul says has been systematically edited and rewritten and reinterpreted over the centuries. You know, there was actually, when thinking about, you know, the scholarly work in like 2000, you ever heard of Dr. Bentley Hart? I think David. Yeah, I've heard the name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He wrote an article about how Paul, like everything you know about Paul is wrong and he's talking about this, angelic war that Paul is trying to write and over time it's been changed you know his his view of the cosmos is the most accurate and our modern view of the cosmos is actually really off and so when that was that was 2017 2008 that was when my mind started to turn that man oh, we have been changing the the language for a long time yeah. and it's, it's more than just, oh, we'll read this verse this way. It's like, you know, all the weird stuff's edited out and, and, and massaged and changed. I don't know. That's a whole nother podcast. But
0: um, <laughs> Yeah, that goes into textual but, criticism and early manuscript yeah. evidence and um wisdom. Is there an editor for Paul and his Ephesians actually written by Paul, or was it a pseudo Paul? Somebody else came in. So there's a lot of questions. But here's the: I want to take all of that, and we can have that discussion at, at a different time if you want. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah
3: dude, hundred percent. Next, Joel Doctor Joel Madamale podcast. We'll do. we we'll get to that one. There we let's, go. Let's, let's, let's stay. Uh, let's, sh- let's, let's take stay it on. all. Let's take yeah. it
0: all down to its most common denominator. Right. and this is again. You just brought it up, Nate. This is just fascinating to me. Let's just hypothetically say, and I'm not of this opinion. I'm going to hold to Pauline all authorship. Um, I think that there was some um, editorial work that was done. This is common in the Greco Roman world. Paul probably hired some scribes who actually did. They were like professional letter writers. you know, And so they would throw a little bit of their spin on it. Paul would read it just like an editor would do with a a book and say, hey, I think I want to tweak this or tweak this. So there's all this stuff that's taking place. But here's the thing that you just described. Even if hypothetically we say that all this stuff was edited out and all this stuff was was kind of washed clean of the supernatural you still can't get away with the biblical text as we have it now being rooted in a supernatural cosmic worldview like even the stuff that like like if they were going to go through that work to edit it then we would literally not have a new testament there wouldn't be no bible for us right and so they were left even even if hypothetically this is true what we're left with is still like okay Paul in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, there were once sojourners and strangers, and all of a sudden, there's this architectural language, oikos terminology, of that is a backdrop of the temple of Artemis, clearly supernatural and cosmic, and there's a this breaking of the dividing wall of hostility, well, that brings the temple in Jerusalem to mind, and, and the supernatural place where the holiness of God would have resided at the very center of this, and so it's like, even if it was all washed out, we're still left asking this question, well, why is it even if with our best intentions of trying to rid ourselves of this fanaticism, if you want to call it, we're still left today talking about it, mm-hmm. right? Like our best yeah. efforts aren't even able to do that.
3: Yeah, that's a great point that the, the backdrop doesn't change and the context doesn't change. Even if you try to change some of the the overt sort of meaning or say it's allegory, whatever, right? Like there, it is,
1: we're still talking about it today. It's It's a phenomenal point. Well, I think there's two reactions you can have to that. When, when I read that article, my reaction was, wow, everything is so much more like Mar- like a Marvel movie, and that excited me. But some people, it freaks them out. Their little, sort of their black and white theology gets blown up, and then they, they kind of get paralyzed, and they freak out, and they, they have to kind of retreat. But some people, it draws them into the majesty and, the, and the, just the magnitude of this story, and we're in a war. And there's a lot going on and it excites people or it can freak you out.
0: Yeah, I kind of have a philosophical response, I guess like practical pastoral response to that i think the people that are freaked out are facing the limits of their understanding and the problem of genesis 3 ongoing is we want to know everything and we want a plus b to always equal c Mm. and the second somebody comes in from the outside and says actually b isn't even what you thought it was it's not even a letter it's something totally different and that breaks your paradigm like your guys's language well now you're like crap i'm out of control I don't know what this means anymore. It's a position of humility that you have to subject yourself to, and there's nobody in this world running around thinking like, "Oh, I want to take the humble life. Like I want to admit that I don't <laughs> know what the heck is going going on yeah, over here, yeah. you know? And yet the biblical framework actually is that God uses the weak to make them strong. God uses the 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 wisdom of this world and brings it to foolishness so that we can mm-hmm. understand the mysteries of his of his ways and his work. And so it's like Man, I, I just hope for those for those folks that get to that position, they just come to that place of admitting, like, yeah, this isn't this isn't black and white. You know, there there is a supernatural realm and a supernatural world, and there are real life malevolent evil beings that are hell bent at the destruction of God. And these beings know that they can't destruct God, they can't destroy God. So, what's the very next best thing that they can do? hijack his people, his image bearers that are, Mm -hmm. you know, a reflection Mm -hmm. of his image. So it's like, if, if God's goal, and this is what I argue in my dissertation, if God's goal is he's a father of a household and he's determined to have his family back together, well, what is the enemy's primary means of, um, upending that thing? Keep the family divided, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, keep Mm. them bickering, keep them, keep them in, um, in internal warfare, essentially. So, anyways, and that these are all the questions that got me into yeah. like knocking on Heiser's door and saying, Hey, by the way, I've got this idea. I think there's something about the household. And I think there's something about these things that are happening in the Old Testament with these teraphim, which are these household gods, and I think that it's connected to the supernatural world. And and that started a, a five and a half, six-year journey of me being deeply rooted in Old Testament. The first two chapters of my dissertation is Old Testament, the last three are New Testament, and then I have a concluding chapter. I'm bridging the gap between the two the two texts.
1: Yeah, well, tell, talk to yeah. us like we're dummies. Yeah, take us back. Take us back to that. Yeah. Because... Uh, I- I mean I've been I you know territorial spirits we talk a lot about how you know these creatures cuz obviously we, our our shows called blurry creatures we talk about creatures and that's how we that's our gateway into all these topics so if these you know there's places and I was I was lucky to have been traveled a lot as a young a younger guy and I know what it's like to be in a certain place and feel differently you just feel like you walk into a cloud of darkness right and I never really underst- I never really understood that I always thought well maybe I'm just a sensitive person and I can just you know, it's you are, like, you are very sensitive, <laughs> just an emo <laughs> ginger kid. But,
2: uh,
1: but you know, like I, I come from California, I, I visit there a lot and I tell you what, that state has changed immensely since I was a kid and mm. you feel it when you show okay. up there mm-hmm. and when you leave and, and I'm like telling my friends, like you got, there's something wrong with certain places. And I, I know you did a lot of work on territorial spirits. So I know we could talk a lot about that. So let's get into it. Talk to us like we don't know anything. Yeah, take because, us back yeah.
3: to the beginning. I know you said, cause it's funny cause you said the terrafim thing and I, that's actually questions that I don't know if we talked about this or I asked you about this initially, but yeah, yeah. but I, yeah, I know that's where you want to start. And I want, I, I want to just listen to you, just, just educate a couple dummies. Yeah, dummies. Well, well, I'm, yeah. I'm going to
0: start, I'm going to start with the funny story. So like right. I'm a PhD yeah. student, right. And I got to do the, this outline, and I've got these two readers who Pat is going to be, I think his work is on the ascension of Christ. There's a lot of overlap between Psalm 82 and the ascension of Yahweh, of Elohim, you know, over the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, and this uh, judicial scene that's taking place. Well, I actually am making the argument in Ephesians 2, 18-22. It's the conclusion of Psalm 82. It's actually like, here, here you go. God, Jesus is elevated and um, he's put over all powers, authorities, principles, and their subject underneath his feet. So anyways, I'm trying to wrap my brain around all of this, and I'm trying to find Old Testament connections to it. And I sent, uh, I think I can't remember what happened first. It was a text message or a phone call to Mike, and I was just like, Hey, I've got this idea. I think there's a connection between the teraphim, these household gods in the Old Testament, and Paul, and then the Greco-Roman representation, the penits and layers of these household, you know, like the famous scene in Gladiator, That's you know, Russell Crowe. You know, I was going
3: to bring that up, Joel. I was like, dude, like when he has little little, little mm-hmm. figurines, That's I was thinking the that figurines. makes a gladiator, and- yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. There you go. So that's Greco-Roman. You know, you've got this understanding of the ancestor deities. And I was like, I think there's something here. And I actually think it's more than just the ancestor deities. I actually think this is a connection to the Shadim, the which in Deuteronomy 3217 is actually talking about or in Deuteronomy, I gotta look at the reference. It's actually talking about how the Elohim are Shadim, you know, these demons are uh, these supernatural, spiritual, uh disembodied creatures. And so in a light of that, I, I texted or called. Mike and Mike was like, yeah, I've not really heard about this. And it was like for Mike to say that should be <laughs> like, hey, you know, like like abort mission, abort mission. Right. This is not the place that you want to go. And I and I just I'm stubborn. I've got a little bit of stubbornness and I've got this like pride in me where I'm like, I got to show him, I got to show him, you know? And so I've got a couple messages that I'm going to read to you that are that are kind of interesting. This is going back and forth on my dissertation chapter. He goes. This is going to be interesting. I'm quoting directly from his comments to me. He's probably laughing right now. This will be interesting. I'm not aware of a connection between the Teraphim and territorial gods of the nations. Typically, Teraphim are connected to ancestor remembrance. But this is intriguing. If you want to keep going, go for it, right? Which is his subtle way of being like, abort, abort. You don't want to go (laughs) this direction because you're going to waste time. I
1: don't know. I don't know. I think that's a little bit of an endorsement. Like, hey,
0: you might find something. Right. Okay. This. Okay. Here's some more. Uh. And then he goes (laughs) into my chapter where he goes, Joel. I don't think you need this connection to establish your thesis. And then he goes, which is good because I'm not optimistic you can demonstrate this line of thinking. (laughs)
1: this he's is brutal though like, I love Mike that he was like always really honest and, and a little bit a little bit snarky a little
0: but like straightforward so he's like yeah. um he gives me a different trajectory and he's like basically he's like if you crash and burn like there's a way out of this let me give you an escape hatch you know and then I get to the very end of that section and dude, I actually have this framed and sitting on my desk he goes nice job. Very good source for this. And he's talking about this Hittite expert that I cited. He goes, incredible connections. I did not know this helpful to me personally. And I'm just like, Dude. and in my dissertation defense, he made the same comments to me. And so, so why bring all of this up? That's awesome, uh, I man. was looking through these, these moments in the Old Testament were these household gods. And the Hebrew uh, phrase for this is the teraphim. And forever, for a long time, it was kind of understood that these were ancestors, dead, deceased ancestors. And there wasn't much of a connection that could be made between these teraphim and the sons of God of Job in Psalm 82 and Genesis 6. And so, it seemed like these were disparate kind of different deity type things. One is ancestors and the other are these patron gods of the nations. And then this is basically some research found that uh, if you take a look at Deuteronomy 32, 17, you know, I'm going to read the text. It says, they, I'm going to give you, uh, who's the they, Israel, sacrificed to demons, the Shadim, not to God Elohim, to God's Elohim. They had not known new gods that had just arrived check check this is wild that your ancestors did not fear so in deuteronomy 32 17 you have the presence of demon shadim that are correlated to elohim this is synonymous language now between the two in the old testament and now there's a reference to ancestors so these Mm. this ancestral kind of identity so you've got the, the two connected. Now, this is where the research took me and I'm going to simplify this. Anybody wants to, you can read my Thank dissertation you. for <laughs> 40,000 for words on this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically a hit type expert, finds a column where it's like words and definitions and when they find this column they actually find, I'm going to actually um, get exactly what it says here uh so they actually say, fu- when
3: you say column is this like a like a carving is you talking about yeah like, like, like a, a car on, it's yeah. like a exactly on a, on stone it's, okay it's an yeah.
0: archaeological dig that they found that would have had words that correlated with other words and so a lot of times what's happening with Hebrew is that the Hebrew language is using loan words from. From other Semitic languages in the area, Ugaritic, Hittite, different mm-hmm. you know words. We do the same thing. We take different words and we use loan words if we you know can't find the the closest meaning. A lot of our words are loan words from Latin or from even Greek at times. And so you, it's a it's a modern thing. But this is what was really really interesting. I think his name was yeah Otten, uh, a German Hitt- uh, Hittiteologist in 1966. He finds this Babylonian column, and. In the column, they defined Shadu as Tarpis. Tarpus is the Hittite word, and so it's basically equivalent. So it's like Tarpis is this other deity, and Tarpis equals Shadu or Shadim is what we know as demons. Well, what are Tarpus? Tarpus are territorial spirits that guarded households of the gods and the entryway for them. So basically, what we have is that now with this being present, if you can say that Elohim are connected with the Shadim, so demons, Elohim connects us back to Genesis 6 and the sons of God. And then you have a Babylonian column that equates Shadim or Shadu, same word, right? Root is the same there, with tarpis. And tarpis is equivalent to a territorial guardian spirit that protected the household, what is the household of? The household of the gods. Then you have a linguistic match that uh, wraps all of these words into one usage, both in terms of etymology, in terms of its language, but also in terms of its function of of how these spirits would have behaved and been used. Now, you're probably wondering, and people are listening like, okay, that's interesting, but how the heck do we find this in in scripture? Like, where, where is this? All right, no problem. Let's turn, go to uh, you kid. I, I got you. I got you. you got There's you, yeah. a story uh, in the Old Testament of Rachel. You've got this. This is just a, a wild story. So basically what happens is Abram, he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans. His brother, his father's name's Terah. His brother's name is Nahor. Essentially on their way out to the promised land, Terah is like, I'm freaking out. I am not going to follow this God that has called you, so I'm going to settle in this land. And so he and his uh, son, Nahor, they settled there. Abram goes out. Well, Abram's looking for a wife. Abram's looking for a wife for his son. I don't want to have a wife from the nations around me. I got to go back to the hometown, you know? And so you've got Rachel. And so Rachel uh, goes, and on her way out as she leaves, it says that she grabs the teraphim of Laban, right? So you've got...
3: It's her dad wow. right it's, it's, it's her father yeah and,
0: yeah, yeah. And, yeah and so and so you've got you've got this scenario where she grabs the household deity of Laban and she takes it with her as they escape and as they run away. Well now here's the really big question why in the world would she grab the teraphim? what is this object doing? Well, remember, when she leaves her homeland, it is space, it's territory, it's land. So for her, this makes all the sense in the world. She's like, I'm about to leave everything I ever knew while I'm in this land and in this location This is going to be totally fine because I'm protected by potentially the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you know, right? Like I'm potentially there, but just in case Yahweh is going to pull through, I still have the teraphim. I still have the gods of the land that are here to protect me. Now she has to leave. And what does she do? She goes, just in case. Yahweh isn't going to pull through and just in case he's not going to protect me and my family I'm going to go ahead and grab the teraphim and I'm going to take this territorial deity and have this as protection for me as I walk out as I leave this land so that um, it can follow me in the land and kind of uh, protect me along the way and so you have the evidence of the teraphim teraphim, um, being a A spirit that's associated with land and households. Uh, And then you have Rachel who grabs it because she's terrified. What if Yahweh doesn't pull through? And so you actually have a war that's essentially taking place behind the scenes in a family situation between these households. Wow. And then you
3: see, and then what's really interesting is Laban's reaction, right? It's like, it's not like, dude, you took my action figures, you know, and, and I, I want them back. It was like he he ran them down to get the stuff to get them back.
0: Because think about it, why? But why? Why would Laban run run down Rachel to get them? Why do that?
3: Because in the way you're describing, it, it would be your protection or your covering, whatever it may be, in, in that land, or your your conduit to the things that are protecting your land is now gone. It's gone, right? It's gone. It's gone. But, mm, it, it's interesting when you say that, you know what it makes me think of right away? And this could be way off. And so you can just set those aside and say, we're not, we're not, we're not talking about that. But it makes you think about when, when God ejects Adam and Eve from the garden. Uh huh. And then what does it, what does he do? He puts a, a cherubim with a flaming cherubim. sword at the end to guard, to guard the entrance. Space. It sounds almost exactly like what you're saying about when, in the, in the Greco Roman sense, when they had these, gods that were meant to, and Paul would have addressed, right? To guard the spaces of, as you talked about in the temples, it's like, dude, this is the same thing. Like mm-hmm. same concept, obviously different teams. We're talking about, you know, this is the, uh, the bulls and the pistons. We're not, we're not, and, you know, you're a bulls fan. So I had to throw that to Absolutely. you. But, I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> and but this, this is, and this is when MJ's beating the bad boy pistons, right? That's right. He's, yeah, uh, exactly, he's like, yeah. sorry, Isaiah Thomas, like you, you suck now. I got yeah. your card. And then he just destroys well, them. We
1: could riff on that one for a while. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to lay out, like, you know, I think people's initial thought is they just assume all these things are bad, right? That's just the that's just the knee jerk reaction. This is all bar. This is all bad. This is all dark. This is all evil. How do you how do you make sense of that? Because I mean, obviously, people just get it sort of spooks them when you when you talk about things like this.
0: Yeah. So let me. So you, I gave that example with with Laban and the Teraphime and Rachel and maybe what is the motivation for it and what it presents, right? So some people could say right now, well, that seemed, that could be a proof text. Is that the only place that this shows up? So the, this is one of the explicit places where you have the word teraphim and you have a territorial situation and and that is happening. Now, conceptually, this is happening everywhere. This is happening everywhere in scripture. So this is one of those things where it becomes a lens. Once you see it, You'll be able mm. to see it clearly in other places of scripture that typically we overlook because it's not a normative way for us to think through. So, let, let me give us a couple of these examples, right? I love that, I uh,
3: love this, Joel. I mean, this is,
0: I love it, by the way. Continue. Yeah. This is yeah. Think, awesome, yeah. Right. Cause, like, okay, it's like the plagues of Egypt. What's happening with the plagues of Egypt? Well, the, and so it's like, Nate, you're asking, is this bad? Is this, I want to put this in the paradigm of Yahweh is king of the cosmos, and he has this divine counsel. And he gave delegated authority to the Elohim, to the Bene Elohim. And in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, uh, it's the aftermath of the Babel event of Genesis chapter 11. And so he he gives them to the nations as guardians to protect them. And I'm going to hold to the position that at some point in time, Yahweh's plan is to bring the nations back together. He keeps Jacob as his allotment, as his inheritance. And so these deities... These ter- that are associated and connected to territories, nations, and lands become corrupt. They accept human worship. They it's full on rebellion, right? And now their territories are connected to these supernatural beings and to a people that are part of the land. So now we go to to, to Egypt. Why is it that Yahweh decides that the means by which he's going to set the Israelites free is through? 10 plagues take a look at exodus 12 12 through 13 Th- this is what the text says for i will pass through the lands of egypt that night and i will strike all the firstborn in the land of egypt both man and beast and on all the gods of egypt i will execute judgments huh that sounds a little familiar psalm 82 anybody maybe mm-hmm. i am the lord the blood shall be a sign for you On the house, now this is house language, where you are. And when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over you and the plague will befall you, right? Numbers 33, 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods, also the Lord executed judgment. What's happening here? Each of these plagues is actually... Uh, cosmic and geographical warfare where the territorial spirits or the gods that are connected to the nations are there. They pose some kind of supernatural power, but their supernatural power is a fraction compared to what Yahweh can do. So in, in giving these plagues, and executing the plagues, in doing it systematically, you can even trace some of these plagues to the specific types of deities that were known to oh. be gods of these things. Yahweh is showing his superiority and his supremacy over these territorial spirits. Now, some of y'all like Joel, that just sounds like, uh, like you know, uh, a little bit far fetched. How do we know that there's more? I got you. Don't worry about it. How about <laughs> Baal and the storm god at, in Mount Carmel, right? It's an act of cosmic and geographical warfare. Baal is a thunder God. Uh, this is, this is super interesting. First King 17 to 1. There's this three year long drought, right? The Elijah announces on the people because of their idolatry. There are other passages of scripture, Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 17, Deuteronomy 28, 23 through 24, where God gives as a potential punishment for the Israelites for idolatry, famine a withholding of rain. Now, think of the irony about this one. You're worshiping Baal, the storm god, and there ain't no rain. <laughs> like, what in the world is taking place, right? And so the the battle on Mount Carmel is a supernatural cosmic showdown between false prophets and the real prophet, between a false god, real, real being, deity, just not Yahweh, you know, the one true God. And then the last one, this one's my my, my favorite, and it's super overlooked, but this is a perfect example of territoriality in terms of cosmic warfare that's taking place. If you look at uh, 1 Samuel 5, there's this odd story where uh, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, right? Th- this is what 1 Samuel 5.2 says. The Philistines now remember the Ark of the Covenant is like the whole this Holy Ark God's presence would have uh, resided there for Samuel 5 two. then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day behold Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, they're like, well, maybe he stumbled in the middle of the night, right? That's my commentary, and put him back up in his place. He might've gotten drunk or something, who knows? But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And then check this out. The head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now, a little bit of Hebrew here, the Hebrew word for Dagon, one of the roots of it that compounds the word to make it together, it can mean fish. So what does an object look like where the hands are gone and the head is gone? You just have a trunk. It looks like a fish laying dead on the ground before what? Yahweh now here's the interesting thing where is this taking place it's not on in Yahweh's land it's in the land of the Philistines this is territorial warfare and the territorial spirit is overcome and overpowered by Yahweh himself this is
2: dude that's rad
1: so oh man I have so many questions I don't even know where to start <laughs> well I was, it's funny because I was talking about this a little bit the other day because California is having record snowfall right and it uh, seems like there's a lot of uh, narratives about weather and all the things going on and yet this, this this state that's supposed to be dry and it's getting pummeled with snow and right. you wonder if you wonder if some of these things are still going on today is kind of the the thought I had is it all this supernatural stuff, these wars, these territories, these principalities, it all seems like it's still going on, but we're just not aware of it. We're just asleep to it all. I don't, I think when we read the Old Testament, we think, oh, there was a time when this is how it went, but now, you know, we're just hanging out and things are good. And I think that's, that's, that's a, you know, the New Testament, the Old Testament, there's a, just a big difference there. At least that's how when I grew up in the church and went to Christian school and they weren't and in the last few years they're together now they're I they're they're finally like if anything now the old testament makes more sense than the new testament even and it used to be Mm -hmm. the opposite where I thought the new testament makes sense I don't understand the old testament now it's like I I think I'm getting the old testament a lot more than the new you know and it's it's funny how things switch but my question so these spirits right they you're saying that they were loyal to God at one point then they got Mm -hmm. corrupted like like any rich celebrity would get corrupted like (laughs) Starts out good. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a good homegrown boy. And then he gets in and he becomes the rock star and then he's, it's just.
0: And then he drinks his own Kool-Aid and then he gets corrupt inside of his heart. And then he uses people as pawns. And yeah. stepping stones in order to to become more and more and more, and in the process, he finds or she finds themselves more lonely, more anxious, more wow. distraught, more isolated, more frustrated, and all the money in the freaking world isn't going to help them get out of that situation preach, that they kind of put themselves into. Yeah. All right, that's a is different it, is, story for a different. No, day.
2: but
3: isn't it interesting though? Like Joe, like on that note, that when you talk about it, the way that God set things up, that. The wages of of fame or adoration or worship are that, or just what you just what you described, and, and it, it just is. It is a universal truth that, like that, whether it be humans or whether it be the the Ben Elohim, the the sons of God, the the angelic race, whether it be any of those people that aren't Yahweh, that aren't the King of Kings, that, that worship ultimately corrupts and destroys and literally rots to the core. It, it is. It's a fascinating truth of reality. there is. I've said this for a long time, but there is. I literally think there are. There, almost nobody makes it out, saying true themselves. There's very few people that are able to do that well, and, and I think it just it, when hearing you say that, it just translates across across the board. I mean, literally across the board when it comes to these, even to these these regents of Yahweh. These, you know, they were governors or you know whatever you want to ambassadors of the kingdom, more or less, that were, were given charge over realms and, and mm-hmm. nations and you know we talked about this sort of language nate with tim a lot but like there's this idea of how the way a kingdom works this is how it worked right and then and then these these entities take and, and they want they want what god has right they want to be worshipped and adored and and pedestaled or whatever you want to call it but it's it's fascinating how that just ultimately doesn't yeah. matter wh- who you are or what you are and i guess in this case it, but it, it destroy it destroys you
1: well i think I think a good way to think about this is that we always say on our show is like, okay, think about the diversity of species on planet earth and then think about how heaven's probably no different. You know, we, we, we tend to think these things are, these worlds, these realms are so much different. So I think if you think about human terms, do you think Satan's going around and just approaching these gods and saying, Hey, look, and slowly corrupting them one by one or, or you know, having psyops where he's trying, you know, like, like humans do, like we, you know, we're fighting geopolitical wars and this guy was on our side and then he's not on our side. And it's just this chaotic, yeah, this
0: is, nay. this is such a good question. So there's differing opinions among scholars about this. Walter Wink is a, a brilliant I'm not sure if he's even still alive or not, but he wrote a lot in this area. He had this concept of the rehabilitation of the um, the rehabilitation of the Elohim of these sons of God. Um, I am going to land with Heiser on this one. I'm not going against him on this one. I think Psalm 82 is a judgment upon them on those beings, and I think that that set the stage. So it's like the angels of God they they're, they are set in place, and these fallen angels have made their bed and they're set in their place and so i don't think that we've got this like temptation that's actually happening for these other you know because think about it this way like the angelic beings right now who stayed faithful to yahweh are probably like heck no i want nothing to do with gehenna like heck no i want nothing to do with what did y'all pay attention to what took place when jesus hung on the cross the evil spirits thought that they sent him to his own death and actually the cross was the means of of their own death Mm. right like they've observed the the redemptive plan of god at work here so i don't think we have to worry about this i do want to make just a couple comments on this uh, to one luke your point humanity was always intended to be reflectors of god's glory not absorbers of god's glory mm. And yet, being made in the image of God is a dangerous position to be in because it's very easy to try to absorb glory that was intended only for Him, rather than reflect glory onto humanity and to the creation to point worship and awe and majesty back to the Creator. Right? And so, There's I. It's th- a word right there, bro.
3: That is that is a word. Yeah. I, mean, I think what we're finding-
1: it's, it's humility, right? I mean, that's- yep. uh, You know, like kind of what you were saying earlier, it's like some of these musicians, they get to a place where they don't have any real friendships. They don't have, so what do they do? They just keep going out and they just they, the, they want all the admiration of their audience. They want to absorb it all. And it's like this addiction, right? It's never right? So enough they don't have, either. Absolutely. Yeah. Endless tours and people singing their songs and praising them, but they're almost emptier every time. It's like you have to have more and more and more to get that same high to feel normal. Eventually you just you get lower and lower.
0: It's it's actually disassociative. What it's actually doing is reinforcing a fabrication. Of your identity, not the reality of who you are. I'm a big fan of um, the late great Eugene Peterson, uh, and he has this. He has this saying. He talks about the congruency of the heart that he longed for what was inside of him to be true of what came out of him. You know what came from him in his words and his thoughts and his actions. And I think what you're describing here in this discussion, and I'm gonna connect it back to to Nate, your first point uh, about what's happening right now is. That there's a discongruity when you and I buy into the hype that we are more than God intended for us to be. This is this is the Nakash in Eden yes. coming to Eve and suggesting that if you just eat of this fruit, that you will be like God. Think about the implicit lie of that statement. They were already more like God than any created being. They were made in his likeness and in his image. And in a total reversal, in a, in a total tragedy, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, they actually lose what they already were in order to be something they were never intended to be. Oof. Their yeah. humanity broke in that moment. Right. And and to your mm. point, why is this? Let's look at Isaiah 14, origin one of one of the origin stories along with Ezekiel of uh, Lucifer's fall. Look at look at what Isaiah says of the internal dialogue of Lucifer, right? This is the internal dialogue that he's having in his mind. Starting Versailles says, Oh, how how oh how, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, uh, you who laid the nations low. And then he said this: You said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. This is Eden. This is Edenic mountaintop language in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds and then catch this. I will make myself like the most high. I mean, this this mm. is absolutely the, the downfall of what took place and of that pride and of that idolatry and of wanting to be what you ought not to be. And then to your point of what's happening right now, this is the the spirit. Mm -hmm. This is Lucifer, right? Look at Ephesians 2, 1. It says that Paul says, we were dead in, in trespasses and sin in which we once walked. Now catch this, following the course of this world, following the prince, the archon, this is now Daniel language, following the prince of the power of the air. We know this is Lucifer. And the way the Greek text is is, is written here, we, ought, we should not read this as the prince of the power of the air who is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. These are two separate uh, beings, supernatural beings. So you've got the prince of the power of the air, and then I would put a period, and now you've got this separate spirit that is at work now. This is present tense. This isn't an Old Testament reality. This is a New Testament reality. That is at work now in the sense of disobedience. And then you know it goes it goes on and on. And so like yeah, they're like all this stuff is happening today. You know, and 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 mm. it's just being w- rinsed, uh, washed, rinsed and repeated with just innovative new marketing techniques. Right. Yeah, the right. same same being. It's like they're sh- they're just changing masks. But all goes—you know—actually, there's some etymology that says that Dagon was the father of ball and uh but it very well could be that the same supernatural being is the same thing that you've got Dagon Supernatural being behind and then he changes his masks mask gets ball well then he goes to Molech, and then he puts on a different mask and he goes to Zeus and then he puts on a different mask and he goes to Jupiter and then he puts on a different mask and you can call him whatever you want now but it's it's all the same same evil beings mm. that are just Changing marketing strategies, the brand changes, right? The being is the same. The brand changes. It's making me think a little
1: bit of this conversation about the temptation of Christ. Because growing up, you know, you think—I mean, we could get that. This is this could be another whole whole other rabbit trail. But I always thought the temptations that that Satan gives to Christ weren't very. How do I say this? They didn't seem like temptations when I when I heard them for the first time. But when you incorporate this worldview, then the temptations become different. Because does that make sense? It's like if he's if he's God, what does it matter? Like he, you know, he's he's going to these locations, and then Satan's trying to get him to defect from his father. It's like, oh, he's trying to lure him over to his side with all these other characters. You know, there's there's so much more going on here. And when you think about the temptation of Christ now, you're like, oh, Satan is. Satan is has, has his own thoughts and
0: plans and what he's trying to pull off. Does that make sense? like yeah, yeah I think it's a recapitulation of Eden. I think it's the Garden yeah. of Eden and Eve and you, don't you want to be like God and yet Eve and Adam are like already like God and uh, and the same thing. and I do think it's actually a rejection of his innate authority, right The Ascension hasn't taken place yet. So it's like here you go. you can have uh you know five grand right now or you can wait till after the cross and you can have eternity like you could have eternal treasure. Well, what do you want? It's like, like immediate gratification. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like immediate gratification like, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it past the cross and I don't know if I want to go through the cross and so yeah, 5 grand could work could work right now, but even notice that the language of the temptations is all spatial territorial. It deals with the temple. It deals with heights. He takes him to the top of a mountain. Well, what happens on tops of mountains? This is the place where God meets man, right? There's actually a retelling of multiple biblical narratives and stories of where the cosmic and the worldly meet. Here's another just kind of idea that I kind of argued in my dissertation that I think is really important. And I can't remember who asked if it was Luke or Nate who asked, but it's like, yeah, like now we, we have these two worlds, cosmic and earthly, in two separate spaces, right? But the biblical narrative all the way from Eden is actually the one influences the other that what is happening in a cosmic realm has ramifications in an earthly context and what happens in an earthly context has supernatural ramifications as mm. well so you've got in Eden a supernatural rebellion with the Nakash the serpent and you have an earthly rebellion with Adam and Eve then you get to Noah Genesis 6 you know in, in the flood narrative where well, you have a supernatural rebellion with the sons of God and the, and the daughters of man but then you have an earthly rebellion with humanity that Taking place, we'll move forward to Genesis chapter eleven. You have an earthly rebellion with the people coming together, trying to build a ziggurat tower to try to force God to come down. Which archaeological digs actually have seen we've seen this that at the very top of the ziggurat tower would have been a, a a room for the deity to come down. And so what this is is a perversion of Eden. Adam and Eve were given a great commission to go out into the world and to spread the image of God out into the ends of the world. And what humanity does is in total rebellion, tries to force God to come down. This is the human plight. We want the shortcut. We want the good of God without doing the responsibility of what it means to be an image bearer of God. And that's what they do in Eden. Now that we have to, or in uh, Babel. Now we got to read Genesis 11 within the backdrop of Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, which gives us the cosmic rebellion. So you have human rebellion, you have cosmic rebellion. The thing goes on and on and on. And we could just, you know, spend all day talking about how the two impact, you know, you've got Naaman. Right. And he's got this leprosy situation and he has to take dirt from, from God's land, essentially to bring it back to his home, homeland so that it's, it's active spiritual, cosmic warfare. Um, so anyways, it, it's, it's, it's the earthly has cosmic ramifications and the cosmic ramifications have earthly. And that has not changed. What happens at the cross? At the cross, you have the physical death of Jesus, but you have a supernatural, rebel, uh, um, liberation of all of humanity. Right, it just kind of goes on and on mm, as a man. pattern.
1: So good. So, so something I'm thinking about, and something we've we've talked a lot about our show is it seems like they're building these these empires that were under the gods, you know, the pre flood world. S- similar structures, pyramids all over the world. You know, they, yeah, mountains. They have, mm-hmm. yeah. So they have, they have, they're different, but they have this thing in common. So can you speak to that a little bit, like? Is Satan the, I mean, obviously it seems like he's the the head honcho of all these, the rebellious ones here. And something else you said made me think about how earth and heaven sort of mirror each other. There's a lot of, there's a lot of accounts of UFOs disarming nuclear warheads. And you've got to think, what does a nuclear warhead do in this realm? And why are they turning them off and all this other weird stuff? And it's like. Are they, are angels flying around and disarming nuclear weapons? I don't know. It just makes you think behind the scenes, how much to and fro they're, you know, A and B. I don't know. There's a lot there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just thoughts. Yeah. Just get it all out of my head. I'm just,
0: I feel like I should to say something weird. before I jump into it. No, no, no. I,
3: uh, no, I, I had one little clarification that I don't want you to jump in. So yeah. when God divides the nations, and this is maybe maybe not understanding and being dumb, when he, in Deuteronomy 32, at the time those Elohim that, that that take the nations as sort of governors, they are still on on a team, right? They haven't they have not rebelled at this point, or is He giving it over to rebellious? No, yeah, that's a really
0: good that's a really good clarifying clarifying point. Um, in my dissertation and and Heiser and Unseen Realms says pretty clearly, we're not told when the rebellion takes place, only the rebellion takes place. Right, okay. and so what happens in Jeremiah thirty-two eight through nine? I call it delegated authority. That God has a divine council. That these council members ought to uh, live honorably uh, in response to what Yahweh has for them to do. He keeps uh, Jacob as his allotted inheritance, and then he's got the nation. Now, this is again earthly, cosmic. Notice the function of Israel in the Old Testament. What is Israel doing? Israel is an outpost of the present kingdom of God, and Israel, and even in the way the law was written, even in the nature of how the israelites conducted their um, relationships with sojourners and strangers they provided inlets for the nations to come and be a part of israel this is the grand scheme of god to have his family back together now what we find evident and just specific is god warns the people of Israel not to worship the stars of the sky. We know this is poetic language for the host of heaven. These are supernatural beings. Uh, and what happened with the uh, sons of God in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, is at some point we're not told when, only that it did happen, that they accepted human worship and they tempted the Israelites to worship them as well. Uh, and so you have these two acts of rebellion. The time frame we don't have all the details of, only the fact that it did take place and it did happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
3: it's interesting too, in the context of the New Testament, right? And I know you write about this and, you're, and I want to get back to Nate's question, but it's interesting that, like, that what Jesus did is brought the Gentiles back into the fold and, and to your comment, right, of Israel being the outpost and having inlets to the restoration of the family of God, that it's always been the plan. Even though the, 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 the Jews would say they're set apart and they're chosen, which they were, were chosen, God's plan was always, even then, was to bring his family, the entire family back together. And and then it was really completed in the work of Jesus, which I think is the most beautiful story that you, the way these things all connect. And I love the lens that you gave us here with, with the territorial spirits. Cause I think it does make so much sense if, so one more thing you said, Joel, and I want to clarify as well. So at the point of the cross, do you believe there's not any more rebellion now?
0: No, there's still rebellion. So here's the, yeah, yeah, that's another really good. So here's what I think, here's what I think happens at the cross at the cross. Jesus deals a death blow To the supernatural, um, cosmic, malevolent spirits. He deals a death blow. They're still active. They're still working. So, the the idea in theological terms is inaugurated eschatology. The idea is that God's kingdom is here and now, and yet it is not yet consummated in in finality. There's this interesting thing I read about uh, lions uh, in the wild in Africa and how a male lion that is in a transition period, a young buck has come in and um, beat it, you know, uh, and it's on its kind of deathbed, that this lion is the most dangerous in these moments, Because at this point, this line ain't got nothing to lose. So it's going to go like all out to destroy anything and everyone around it, right? And so on, at the cross, what Jesus does is he deals the death blow to the um, to the bene Elohim, to the fallen sons of God, to the entire supernatural realm that is uh, has set up a false kingdom, uh, an alternate kingdom to Yahweh. And in so doing, they're in their final stages. And so I actually would say they're more dangerous now in this way that they ain't got nothing to lose. They know what the end is going to to look like and yet they're stripped of their most important tool and tactic that they had which was the ability to blind the nations from yahweh so if you look at ephesians 3 mm. this is what paul says in verse 3 how the mystery was made known to me by revelation when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles prophets by the spirit and then he says this is the mystery." the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, if the Gentiles were territorially ruled by malevolent supernatural beings, but at the cross they were dealt a death blow, mm. now the church has every opportunity to show the manifold wisdom of God and bring in the Gentiles. Um, that's earlier in Ephesians 2, 18-22, that, um, that we are no longer strangers and al- uh, aliens, uh, but we're actually the we're the household of God before you ever get to the temple you get the house so the house is built the house is growing and forming into the temple and what is the temple? the building blocks of the temple are the nations of the world yeah I mean I, I... well it kind of it, it helps me kind of think about
1: sort of my previous question because it does seem like after Christ there's sort of these deserted it's almost like there's these ghost towns around the world of these ancient empires. And who knows when they went deserted and, and, and became ghost towns. Some people say pre-flood. Some people say after the, you know, that they, they were just remnants of these, these sort of dynasties that were, all, were in full rebellion against God. But they had these things in common, a lot of snake imagery and, oh yeah, you know, Iconography. serpent worship.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah
1: temples and they're building mounds all over the Philippines and they're all over America and they're all over China and they're everywhere, right? And there's South America. Um, but there is little differences here and there. Some of the architecture is different. The stonemason work is different. And it and you're just like, okay, there's similarities and there's differences. And it, it's really confusing when you get into sort of the megalithic construction and, and like why they were building what they were building, where they were building it, but they were connected. They They knew sort of the Earth's grid, and they were building them in certain locations, even... So I just wonder the similarities and differences.
0: Like a lot of this is astral, right? This is a lot of this astrological because they're they're making connections between the temple and astral deities. And so even in, in its geographical orientation, part of migration, I think, has to do with the fact that um, space and time is moving and geography is moving. And so there was these mythological kind of beliefs that the temple had to be oriented in a certain way in order to make connections with the astral kind of um, astrology or uh, cosmology. And And so, you know, over decades and generations and times, the stars are moving. So your buildings that you had built now are kind of like, oh, crap, they're not oriented in the same way. So now we've got to make changes and adjustments. Here's the other thing that I think is really important in demonology is sometimes we conflate What is true about Yahweh? And we assume or presume that that is also true of the supernatural malevolent beings as well. And so we almost have this yin yang kind of idea of equal and opposite. And there's this, you know, kind of battle. And that's not the case. Yahweh is king. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He is king of the cosmos and he is, you know, like um, uh, Yahweh is Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. That's a Heiser Heiser, uh, quote. And so in that Mm -hmm. he is a a species unique. That's one of the things I loved about what Mike used to say about Yahweh. And in saying that, we also have to know that these beings are not omniscient. They're not omnipresent and they're limited in time and space. And so there is, Daniel is cosmic warfare and geopolitical realities on display. It's right. very clear that at some point in time, just like in any military situation, if land loses value, you withdraw, you move to different places where there's more opportunity as civilizations are changing and as there's new opportunity to grow. And you know, I think you have the presence mm-hmm. of supernatural beings that are like, well, screw it, I'm out of here. You know, the, the, the land of the Philistines is not like they're a dead people. And so I'm going to now move to a different uh, geographical spatial territorial location to cause havoc in these spaces. And so in that type of supernatural territorial migration, it makes sense to me, at least theoretically to say, huh, that's where you have some similarities, but unique distinctions of a new society and new ways that these beings could work.
1: And if we what we know about egos is that sometimes they get along, sometimes they help each other and sometimes they don't. So, do these spirits war with each other and war with Yahweh and is there evidence any evidence for that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think they do. This is probably a whole different discussion for a different day, and we can get into some, <laughs> some, some examples know, right? of that. But I yeah. think that there's absolutely infighting uh, amongst the supernatural realm, and yet there is good evidence that th- there are two. There is a competing head of a household, and, and and Lucifer is, in terms of organization and rank, higher than all these other supernatural beings. You know, um, but again. The enemy can only be in so many places that you know in in one place and in one time, and all these other malevolent supernatural beings have got their own agendas that they're that they're dealing with. And so, I think he's got his hands full in in dealing in dealing with very difficult personalities. I'm sure, and and how that works out. Clint Arnold is an incredible New Testament scholar. I did a lot of work. He does a lot of work in supernatural warfare, and I think Clint gives us a good. Just approach to this. We're told of differences of rank. We're told that there are differences in angels and archangels and and all of that. And yet, at least from the biblical text, there's a silence in terms of how those ranks are played out and what, like maybe the military scenario looks like. And so that's where me as an evangelical kind of orthodox biblical scholar, I'm going to try to go to where the text takes me to, and beyond yeah. that, it's going to be some speculation on my part. And I'm happy to speculate there, but I'll just be clear that it's speculation on my part. Mm.
3: Do you think that that there are that some of the geopolitical conflicts that we see now, like today? Absolutely, are 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 related to to these to the influence of these of these territorial spirits at.
0: Absolutely. War. Yeah. Absolutely. I, listen, this yeah. this might get me into a lot of trouble. I may I may get canceled out of out of the <laughs> stuff over here. Right? Not on our but, show, I mean, bro. I, <laughs> not here. Listen. I just cannot. I wrote a paper. um, I'm uh, I'm a co-host for um, a series called Therapy and Theology. It's myself, my boss Lisa Turkhurst, and a licensed counselor, Jim Cress, and we did a whole section on pornography. You know that the the, Jim calls it the pornemic. Listen, y'all, I'm just telling you right now. There is no other um, explanation in my mind, theologically, biblically, and as a scholar, a New Testament scholar, other than. Malevolent supernatural beings that have cultivated a culture of porneo, right? Pornea, like that system that has invaded. Uh, into different systems and structures inside of our world. Geographically, locationally, there are hot spots of sexual perversion. Ancient Rome, we think Rome was horrible. Like some of the stuff that's happening now makes Rome look like no big deal at all, you know, which is just mind blowing to consider. Uh, and think about what uh, pornography, all this stuff is doing. It's an affront against image bearers of God, mm-hmm. it's an affront against their image, the disgracing of it's the dignity and the value. Yeah. Absolutely 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 you know mm-hmm. um and so you have that and i think the same is true like again this might get me in trouble i don't you know whatever but like i think the rise of psychedelics right now and the infatuation with shrooms and all this other stuff i think i'm i'm watching sitting back looking i'm like listen i've had some friends talk about some experiences that they had i'm just like listen y'all are talking to real supernatural beings Mm -hmm. Like, this is opening doors and gateways into uh, realms of reality that you have no business being in, and um, you're being deceived. Like, you're being deceived into a false sense of security, which is actually taking you down a road of, like, total destruction. I think the same is true of alcoholism. Like, I think these beings have learned now that the greatest way for them to get, like, you know, Rome is dead, Persia is gone, Babylon is gone. But you know what still is around? Alcoholism. Pornography <laughs> you know no. um mm-hmm. drug abuse mm-hmm. you know like and these are ancient vices that are powered by ancient enemies, and we need an ancient solution, and that solution is the gospel jesus himself let's
3: go there's mm-hmm. nothing hey, nothing controversial about that honestly dude like I mean these are you nailed it on the nose these things are it's controversial to the world and the way the world thinks and and I believe that right it's it's the whole uh the whole Crowley thing, do as thou thou wilt, you know, like do what you want, right? And and that that is the, that is the mantra of the, of the enemy in the darkness. Mm. So fascinating, man. I, I, there's so much, so much. I got more, I want to talk about, you know?
1: Yeah. I do want to say about the, talk about the death blow, right? We we talked to Heiser on our episode with him about Mount Hermon and the transfiguration and sort of the transfiguration was sort of the, Alerting them all, like, oh, wait notice. a minute, yeah, he's about to do something, you know,
0: yeah, and the dudes that we murdered in the past are, are here now. All of a they're sudden, they're back, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. oh crap, it's the it's the Avengers on top of <laughs> on know, Herman, top of yeah. the mountain yeah. that just showed up. It's like Avengers unite, yeah. yeah. Well, you can't.
1: I mean, these stories you grow up with them, and I don't. I how do we make sense of these stories? In sort of a non supernatural divine council worldview, I mean, these are some really strange. I mean, he goes up there, brings a couple of the guys, he shines on the mountaintop, and then God appears and says, "You know, this is my son." Um, please, yeah. oh. So what happens though? Like, what do you think really happens at the moment that Christ is crucified? Does he does he go down? Does he t- reclaim the? Does he do something? Is there some sort of exchange that happens under the in the earth? Is or uh, down in the the prisons?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this gets into Sheol and the depths of Damn. Hades and what's happening on when he's talking about he he comes, uh, he's down there for three days. He's proclaiming the gospel. You know, I kind of hold uh, to the view that what he's doing is he's taking the righteous dead of the time. So, the the Hebrew conception of the underworld is you've got Sheol, but you had these two compartments. This is present in Luke where you've got the story of Abraham, or you've got the, the, Lazar, the Lazarus story in Abraham's bosom. And there seems to be a gap in between a chasm that separates those that are the, the wicked dead versus the righteous dead. What I think is happening is that uh, Jesus is coming down. And as the mark of that final blow, he's actually gathering the righteous dead from their from their place of residence, essentially, in Sheol and taking them with him to paradise, which is why he tells that thief, like, hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And he marches them um, in front in triumph, you know, in front mm-hmm. of these vanquished. Uh in chains beings that are in Tartarus, which are the Genesis six sons of God, different, different group of people that, you know, had sex with the human women, and they have they birthed the Nephilim and the Nephilim are disembodied spirits. Those are the spirits that we're talking about that are demons in the New Testament, not the Shadu that we're talking about of Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. Uh, so I think that's what's happening on the day that Jesus goes to the cross. There's a passage passage in 1 Corinthians that says that if the evil uh powers if the powers and principalities knew what they were doing to Jesus they would have never sent him to the cross that's right they would have never yeah. sent him to the cross so by sending him to the cross and again notice the 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 correlation cosmic and earthly so earthly who do you have the Pharisees and Sadducees in Rome that execute Jesus cosmic what do you have Powers and principalities working within systems and structures in order to manipulate a situation in order to get the release of Barabbas. I mean, we just celebrated Palm Sunday, right? The release of Barabbas. And instead you get Jesus who's get who, who goes to the cross. So they're chanting, they're thinking they had won. And then in those three days, they're like, oh shoot, mm-hmm. we just, we just screwed ourselves royally. And and witness of that. Cause then you have this crazy example, right? All these spirits show up. On Earth for this period of time, like where people see their their deceased, you know, kind of like walking what's around. happening? They're walking yeah. around. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happening? Well, I think that literally you've got this moment where Jesus released them, and they are like, "Hey, let me stop by real quick, say what's up to my family, make sure they're good on my way <laughs> to <laughs> paradise." That's kind of like as, as as layman's terms as I can put it. Because right. I'm like, what would I want to do, right? Like I Bro, hope I be- pop- like yeah, like hey, yeah.
3: And bro, it is, we're, looking to, we're looking down to we're looking Easter, and it's like that part of the Easter story. You know, you're not gonna, you're probably not gonna get on Sunday. Like, well, the you know, there's dead zombies walking around more or less. They came out of their tombs
1: and walked around.
0: Right. Well. Right. Exactly. Is this
1: why there is sort of an intellectual divide between Old and New Testament? You think because maybe Christ does something to these territorial spirits, these gods, these fallen? So it looks different. You have just a different way that they rebel. They're still in rebellion, but it's not as overt, maybe, as it was before. Does that play into...
0: Yeah, no, I think what this has to do with today is just a very smart enemy. Like, like for instance, why is that I can go to India, and they're way more open to the supernatural, Mm -hmm. to paganism, to Hindu, you know, and we go here in the Western Enlightenment kind of uh, area. Yeah, and all this stuff feels very odd and there is this intellectual superiority to explain away everything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there we have a smart enemy who's like, I'm going to play within the terms and within the, the guidelines that is in front of me in order to be the most successful that I possibly can. So why go upstream? Why run upstream? I'm just going to go downstream. So I think, again, here in the US, we've got issues of pornography. We've got issues of addictions. I mean, y'all, the, the um, opioid e- epidemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just unbelievable, right? Uh, what's taking place. And do we really think that this is just human innovation? No, I think there are territorial spirits and beings behind the scenes that are promoting uh, a lot of this, you know, um, racial uh, injustice and disunity and, and division. And then I think we're very, again, this could get me in trouble, but I think we are very naive to think that the church, the local church is immune from the tactics mm-hmm. of the enemy. Right, like no, we can absolutely get caught up in in a lot of these schemes, and in the process of uh, fighting for righteousness and saying that we're advancing the kingdom of God, we're actually unknowingly doing the work of the enemy, which is a terrifying thought. A terrifying thought to have. Well, it's interesting
3: mm-hmm. too that that, like you just said, that the within the territory they the schemes are 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 modified, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the things that they do in India and and, and things that they do in Sub-Saharan Africa, things they do in Haiti. Things they do in Mexico across the border are different than what they'll do here or in Canada. It's yeah. a, it's it's very interesting. I mean, it it, it I think it just it, it, it's it hits a nail on the head when you talk about territorial spirits and, and and we look backward, but then we can say that the same thing is is we're seeing the same influences happen now. It just perhaps it looks a little differently, like like you said, the marketing's changed. Yeah, that's a very a very a very spot on point to this. You know, this whole. Think, I mean,
0: think about it this way: it's like when you got to rebrand somebody, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. like the rebrand moment, and bands have to do this, artists have to do this all the time, athletes have have to do it. When you have to rebrand, it's the same person, it's the same being. You're just giving a different spin yeah. on it, right? Yeah. And so you go to India, and you have one of the most horrific systems, the caste system, and I think that's a supernatural system and structure that's put in place and so that territorial spirit in that area is going to work within that system and work within that structure and it's so Mm. embedded it is so embedded in that space you want to know how you get spiritual warfare in india you go there and you suggest that there is no caste system You suggest that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, but that we're all made in the image of God. Watch how, like, watch how, like, all hell will break loose over there. Why? Mm. Because it's a Mm. spiritual act of warfare against a stronghold in a territorial space that has used that tactic as a tool to keep humanity divided. And now you're threatening that spirit's, uh, evil spirit's actual power and stranglehold in that system or in that society, in that territory.
1: And mm. and you think it do you think a human being is necessary like a human being has to make a decision or has to give themselves over to this these spirits in order for them to then take possession of that area or do you think that they can sort of manipulate human beings to do their will like who's in control here who's you know because a lot of people say it's, it it requires a human being first to give up their sort of their right their their, their agency yeah
0: yeah, I don't know. I think there's again theories on this one. My, my, uh, my thought on this is that if you're a believer, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, then I'm going to hold the position that you cannot be possessed by uh, an evil spirit. Uh, you can, however, be oppressed and you can be, uh, manipulated, you know, so you can feel oppressive systems on it. I think it's very scary for people that are neutral. You know, because if you're neutral on the chessboard, you're fair game for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's like, listen, if you're neutral and now you got yourself in addictions and alcoholism or whatever else, and even these psychedelic things like I really think that these are gateways, supernatural gateways into possession, into possession. You know, Mm -hmm. it can really, really mess people up. I, I don't think it is. How do I say this? I don't think that it's random that uh, we're finding more and more celebrities being way more open to psychedelics, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's actual exchanges that are potentially taking place that now talk about paradigm and uh, paradigm breaking situations where you're like, whoa, what is actually happening? And so, um, but I don't think it, you just wake up one day and go there. I think it is a um, a frog in the kettle where you turn the water mm-hmm. on and over time, the environment heats up into a place, which is the scariest thing that we allow our environment to get to a place where we just are like, yeah, this is normal. This is normal. And mm-hmm. like, as believers, as a Christian, I'm like, no, this ain't normal. This is not normal. This is not how how we ought to be.
1: Yeah, it's great. We just talked to Derek Gilbert a couple of days ago, or a couple episodes ago, just about how the Valley of the Shadow of Death and where Jesus is baptized is very specific place that he believes, it, and it was spiritual warfare, and it's and it's cool. It's it's it's. Is that the Valley on his helps. way to the cross? The Valley of the
3: Shadow of Death was the where all the there were ten thousand dolmens there, and it was where um, the dolmens were built. He was baptized, and it was essentially on the shores of of uh, Bashan.
0: Yeah, so I think of the
3: Jordan. Yeah.
0: This is wild, um, but I think I was in Israel a couple years ago, and we went to the place. We, we followed the path that Jesus would have walked in order to get to the cross. He would have literally walked what an area that was known as the Valley of Death, the Valley of Shadow mm. of Death. And as he was walking, there would have been tombstones and actual, I mean, a graveyard uh, of places. This is the exact same escape route that David would have used um, in order to get away from um, Absalom when he comes in and takes takes uh, over uh, Israel, but interestingly, the path that Jesus takes isn't to safety; it's to the cross. So David bounces. Mm. Right. And he goes to safety. Jesus. And so as David leaves, he sees the valley of death as an image of like, oh, crap, I could die. You know, so he's like, I'm going to get to freedom. Jesus walks the valley of death and he actually is like, oh, no, I am going to die. I'm committed to death. And he actually walks to the cross, um, which I think is there's absolutely terror. And think about dark spaces. I mean, I think as he's walking there, I, this is just me personally. I don't have textual proof. I'm speculating here, but I have a belief that um, Jesus is able to see every evil. Supernatural being that um is on that va- is in that valley that is just mocking the hell out of him, right? If humans yeah. are mocking him, then you have again cosmic and earthly. I think they're mocking him as well. And really he's walking towards their own defeat. But he's yeah, to I love that.
1: He's I love to victory, that. Man. It it's, reminds yeah. me of when I was a kid and I watched the the Chronicles of Narnia and you see Aslan getting. You know, mm-hmm. and they're all the weird creatures around them. There's just, and I yep. think that's what Jesus was seeing on the cross. He's seeing human beings mocking him, but then all the weird, dark stuff. That's what I thought as a kid, like, oh, it made... It made that scene just, it made that sacrifice and that 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 raw emotion just so much more intense. Now think about
0: this, and now think about Jesus' last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is the them and the they? I think it's earthly. I think he's yeah. like, forgive humanity, for they know not what they do. Well, why would Jesus say they know not what they do? It's to your point, Nate, because I think he's looking out and he sees the f- full chessboard of supernatural warfare and he can see every way that this supernatural enemy has manipulated humanity into sending him to the cross and jesus is like listen there's so much more at stake here there's so much more at play and so he's like father forgive them for they know not what they do because he sees just like that scene in aslan all these dudes coming in to to make the kill shot um Mm. in fact they're like assassinating themselves yeah isn't it it's the irony. It's well, good. there's so many
1: verses too. Like, you know, I, I, I didn't come to condemn the world, but save the world. And, you know, you grow up, the hardest part about growing up in the church is you get you get sort of little snippets of the supernatural and you interpret some of the other events so poorly because you don't have the full, you know, all the colors of what's going on. And so a lot of people get real hung up on all the cataclysms and other, all the other things that they don't like about scripture. And I love this episode, Dr. Joel, because it's kind of like every time a, a first-time guest comes on, it's sort of shotgun blasts with like, it, we, we kind of go all over the place. But it's just a great introduction. I really enjoyed your energy and your thoughts and your studying. And it's cool. I was, I was fascinated. This is fun. Because a lot of times, you're really personable too. A, a lot of times we get doctors on the show and it's, it's like it feels like I'm talking to someone who's way smarter in a different, a different world than I'm at. You know, I'm just a dude hanging out chasing my kids Well, you're just I'm way smarter
3: but you just you, you got like, a good personality
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. No, dude. I'm, yeah, I'm well, you to can just normal too. people yeah, yeah right yeah. And,
0: and, yeah, and again this yeah. is we started with Heiser, maybe we can end with him i would just say he modeled this to me he modeled this to me i mean we would be talking we would be talking to army 32 it would ascension language all this stuff and then he'd be like how's your fancy football team doing this year because no, mine's right. trash <laughs> Mine's trash, you know. I'm yeah, like, right. I'm like this dude, and he modeled for me. You know, he he was so famous. He would say he was a, he never had an original idea. You know, he was just a synthesizer oh. of ideas. And I'm just trying to follow. Um, I'm standing on on the shoulders of giants, and he's one of them. And so he modeled it for me. So hopefully, uh, any of the good that you see in me, it's a it's mm. a discipleship part of what he has instilled in my life. And yeah, man, this this these need to be conversations that the everyday average person you know and and like people were like what the heck is happening with ufos and and bigfoot and and extraterrestrial kind of like thoughts it's like well yeah all that is super scary if you don't have a supernatural worldview
2: correct but if you do have a
0: supernatural world like think about think about john on the island of patmos and he's like having to figure out what the heck how do i write the this how do i write revelation right he's using the only language and words that he has at his arsenal in the time to describe things that are probably hun- like, th- like thousands of years later, hundreds of years later. And so put yourself in that position. Imagine you were, you know, 200 years born earlier and you had to describe our conversation right now. Like right. the dude speaking into a torch that was not on fire and it crossed the, the sound waves crossed hundreds of thousands of miles. Like it, it's it's crazy to think about that, yeah, and is. and so if you don't have a supernatural worldview, it's. It's mind-breaking, honestly. So I'm grateful for you guys for having yeah, for these all. conversations and and opening up the world to a discussion that's so vital and necessary. And hopefully, like it can still be weird, but not be weird. Where you're like, I don't want to do yeah. this. Yeah. like. Well, let's I, keep was trying, I was trying. I was
1: I was trying to say I want you to come back on the show. That's what I was trying to say. Because <laughs> yeah, I thought we could have gone like, like, like five like, different ways. I know. But yeah. This is sometimes. Sometimes you get everyone like you get somebody's work and it's just it's sort of all wrapped up in one episode and you're like okay that was good but i i just feel like we just kind of scratched the surface of all kinds of weird conversations we could have and if you hopefully you enjoyed it too and you had you had fun with our our weird questioning and uh our sort of creature sort of creature framework that we operate inside of and uh thanks man i'm glad you guys met at that conference that's cool yeah me too
3: yeah dude um now grateful for this grateful for you you know like, like you said like mike's been in a big influence on on our worldview and, and why we're in this space too so it's good c- yeah. it's cool to have a fitting tribute at the end joel one of the things we do at the end is, is just allow you to to tell our listeners where they can where they can engage with with your work engage with what you're doing i know you're doing a lot of things and you got a lot of different projects a lot of irons in the fire so we're grateful for your time yeah. in the evening because you've got kids like we do and so we understand that that's a uh, there's a small sacrifice in there but let everybody know where they can they can find you keep up with what you're doing and yeah. and your work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so a lot of uh like what Lucas said earlier, a lot of my work you'll find on Instagram, so it's just at Mudamali, M U D D A M A L L E. I do a fun thing on Tuesdays. It's gonna be tomorrow uh from the recording date uh where we do theology talk Tuesday. So kind of the idea is to answer your theology questions in, in an accessible way. Uh and then my website just mutamally The big project I'm working on is a book that comes out uh March uh, of next year. And so if mm. you uh, jump onto my website, you can sign up to my uh, newsletter. Or you can follow me on Instagram and you can get more information uh, on that book and some more details. I'm excited to share a little bit more about it in the coming days. Cool. But yeah. And then uh, just Google Moodle Molly, I guess. There's not many of us out there. So you'll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah, it, bro. That's right. I love that's it. That's right. Thanks so much, man. I yeah, appreciate it. You got yeah. a lot of
1: energy and fire and passion. And I love that. And that's what we need because there's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of the. Unfortunately, a lot of the guys come on our show. They 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 moved on. They passed on, and so we needed like another fresh batch of young people who want to get into the weird stuff, especially in the theology world. So thanks so much, and uh, it's good you to have bet. you in the space, man. Thanks, you brother. Bet. Good you to see bet. you, man. We, we yeah. got we got to get good a, luck on the book too. We got to get a hang.
3: Yeah, in one uh, of these We'll days. get it in there. Good to see thanks, you, dude. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, that will connect. Yep. All see right, you, Luke, Nate, thanks, so man. good
0: to meet you, brother. Good to meet you too. Love it. All right, bro. Thanks, Joel. Frozen, see you later. Yep, bye.